0: open those to Philippians chapter 1. We've just started our study in Philippians just a couple of weeks ago and it's really kind of fitting that we go from Ephesians into Philippians because the last thing that we studied in Philippians chapter or Ephesians chapter 6 rather was about Christian warfare. And as we move into Philippians, Philippians acknowledges all of those struggles that we have with Christian warfare but it also teaches us how to get beyond that fighting mode and how we can really have peace and contentment amidst all of these struggles that we have in our lives. And there's just no way that you can explain that to somebody who isn't a Christian. Uh, There's no way they can understand it because they can't see how a Christian can have this Christian warfare going on, having all the struggles, all the problems that people have, and then Christians run around smiling and act as if they're unscathed or at least you should act that way, I think. And uh, lots of people really don't understand that. The truth is that unless you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have every reason to be discouraged. I mean, you ought to be depressed because there's no hope for you outside of Jesus Christ. And so this is what Paul points out to us. And the Bible says we teaches we must have a personal relationship with the Lord before we ever learn how to deal with the real problems that we have in life. I remember about seven or eight years ago when I was in high school that uh, there was a, a class that was offered in our school called the Bible as Literature. And the idea of this class was that really what they wanted to do was remove God from the picture and remove anything that was uh, 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 religious, the religious aspect of the Bible, and simply to teach the Bible like you would Shakespeare. And uh, I never took that course, but I could imagine that would be something very dangerous for a school to try to do if they're trying to divorce God from the school system. And the reason that I say that is because some poor, unsuspecting student might start reading the Bible... And seeing what the Bible has to say and and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit gets hold of their heart and the Holy Spirit conquers them and they surrender to God's will. They surrender the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and there you go. You've got a a saved Bible-believing student. Now, I know that's not what the school system wants, but the truth of the matter is you can't take the Bible and just understand what the Bible has to say unless you have been converted unless you really know Christ as the Savior, and then you can't be truly happy in your life until you know Him. Two weeks ago, we looked at the introduction to Philippians, and there we kind of got a background to what's going on in the book. But here, uh, we're going to continue tonight and look at the opening remarks that Paul has in chapter 1. So let's stand, if you would, please, and we're going to read verses 3 through 8 in Philippians chapter 1. Paul says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. That is a very important verse, and you might want to underline that one. I'm going to preach three messages from that one verse in the next few weeks. Verse number seven. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, Inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye are all partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come together tonight. Help us, Lord, as we look into your word to learn something that will help all of us in our everyday Christian lives. And we give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In verse number 3, Paul says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Now, in our last lesson, I hope that you remember that we discussed the dire circumstances under which Philippians was written. Paul was a prisoner in Rome, and uh, even though he was a prisoner, he really wasn't deprived of all the opportunities that he had to preach the gospel. Uh, people were allowed to come in and visit him, and we learn that from, from other scriptures like in the book of Acts, but he was still someone who was a prisoner. He, he wasn't free to do everything that he wanted to do. And while he was there... He, he thought about these people in Philippi and how they were so generous to help him in the ministry. He mentions that, and, and it's a wonderful thing that the people that had been converted under his ministry in that city of Philippi still had a part in the ministry of Paul. Philippi was a place of, of fond memories for him. And Philippi was unlike somewhat the other churches that Paul organized because we don't really find a strong rebuke for the church at Philippi in this letter. So as he thought about this church, this really wasn't a troublesome church. And so he said, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. I want you to notice that word thank there for just a moment. If you remember, we talked about this word in our study in 1 Corinthians. This is the word eucharistio. It's the same word from which we get eucharist. And that's what some people call the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is a time of giving thanks. And so that's the very same word Paul uses here. But he's thankful for their love and the support. And and, and the church had supported him. And so he says, each time that I thank you, or each time I think about you, I give thanks. And people in the church that don't give a pastor problems are a really blessing to the ministry. And those are people that a pastor really gives thanks for. Sometimes... Church members can be very burdensome, and they are very troublesome. And so sometimes a pastor's ministry is enduring grief with a lot of different church members. This is why Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, says in Hebrews 13, verse 17, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves... For they watch for your souls as as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief. For that is unprofitable for you. So the Philippians were not unprofitable for Paul. They weren't a grievous people for him to look after. So there was joy in the ministry that Paul had at Philippi. And these people that he writes to are good candidates to write this kind of a letter. They understood what Paul was going through, and they understood and appreciated his work, and they understood Paul's heart as he writes. So he he thought about them, and as he thinks about them, he looks beyond personal trials, and he thinks about the joy of serving Christ, even though at that time he was a prisoner. Now, I like verse number four, because Paul says there, I give thanks in every prayer for you. Paul spent a lot of time in prayer. He was a man of prayer. And we notice that uh, in his prayer time and what we see in the Bible, it's usually filled with thanksgiving. And we notice that Paul, not very often at all, mentions personal needs. He doesn't talk about the physical, and he doesn't talk about the material. In 2 Corinthians, we have a prayer of Paul where there's one instance where he did, if you remember, ask God for physical healing when he asked God to remove the thorn in the flesh that he had. But most of the time, Paul never mentions himself. Rather, he goes to God in thanksgiving, and we find requests over and over again for the welfare of others. And that's much different than many of our prayers. When we go to God in prayer, most of the time we come to God with a shopping list. God, I need this. God, I want that. Do this for me. Do that for me. And so our prayers are usually me and mine, and rarely do we open up and we really pray for the needs and the welfare of others. But prayer ought to be a time when we have care and concern also for what's going on in the lives of other people. Now, that's really what I like about Wednesday night prayer time. Because we come to church and, and we take out this uh, little prayer page over here, and and we have all of these names of different people with all kinds of problems, salvation needs, health needs, many different things that are going on. And I think that God is pleased when when we stop and we consider the the problems that are going on in people's lives. And the evidence that God is pleased with that is the response that God gives us. We know, and and many of you here are, are testimonies to the fact that God answers prayer. And so what we really need to do not just what we do here in prayer time on Wednesday night, praying for the needs of others, but every time that you go to God in your personal prayer time, that also ought to be a time that you consider the needs of others. So pray as Paul did. You give thanks to God, and, and, and you, you pray for the burdens uh, that, are, that are being borne by, by other Christians. So that's good things. I mean, those are good things to think about, Paul, in this particular scripture. But that's not really what I want to talk to you about tonight. This evening, I want, I want to talk about the fellowship among believers. Now, verse number 5 and verse number 7 are, are where we want to concentrate. Paul says, I thank God for you. I joyfully pray for you. And then he says in verse number 5, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And then in verse 7, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye are all partakers of my grace. Now, there's really kind of where we want to concentrate, partakers of the grace here, that are a fellowship of believers. So really, that's what the, the key to this passage is, the part we're studying, because this is what Paul has in common with these people. He doesn't have so much in common on the physical level, I mean, uh, he's a prisoner, they're free, he's a Jew, they're Gentiles, he's well-versed in many different parts of the Scripture, and, or in all of the Scripture. They don't have much background in the Scripture at all. But what they do have is this common bond, and the most important bond, and that is they relate to one another through the gospel. And so Paul says, I can fellowship with you because of the gospel. We're different on many different levels. Many levels we're different, but we have the same gospel. We can fellowship through that gospel. Now, friends, that's one of the many wonderful things about salvation in Christ. And that's because the gospel cuts across social ties. It cuts across economic conditions. It cuts across racial differences. And the uh, the gospel binds us together. People from all over the world are bound together through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, that was some of the subject that we taught on Sunday morning. And we use this verse here, Matthew 8, verse 11. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. In Revelation chapter 5, the redeemed of God sing a song. And they say, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And so what the gospel does, it unifies very diverse people. And we have fellowship with one another. And so Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. That's the introduction. That's a long introduction. So I'm going to try to be brief as we look at the, at the outline tonight. Number one, how do we fellowship together? Well, number one, we have fellowship in participation. We participate with each other in the gospel. I'm saved and you are saved for only one reason, and that's because God has chosen it to be so. There's nothing that I can look at in me. There's nothing that you can look at in you. It's only by the good pleasure of God's will that he decided that he would make us participants in his grace. I don't think that I really have to go into a, a long explanation for you to tell you when that happened, as we looked in the book of Ephesians and studied there, we found out when God decided all this, that was before He ever created the first thing that was on the earth. Before the foundation of the world, the Scripture teaches that we were elected to, by God unto salvation. And, and God just, just looked down through time, and He didn't, he didn't choose us because, because He saw something good that we would do. It's not based upon anything in me or you. There is no reason in man at all for God's choice. The scripture tells us that neither you nor I could do anything good or evil that would cause God that he might choose us. So there's nothing that man does that figures into this plan. This is because of a covenant that God made with his son, Jesus Christ, before the world began, that God would give a certain number of this human race to Jesus and he would come and he would save them from their sins. And so Jesus came to redeem these people that God has given him. And so Jesus is never, should never be considered as a potential Savior for anyone. Jesus is the Savior who came to save his people. And that's the ones that were given to him by the Father. And every one of them, without fail, will be redeemed. And so we're drawn together in this common bond, not because of some decision that we have made or because of any good that we have done, But we are brothers and sisters in Christ only by the sovereign will and determination of God alone. So your fellowship with me and my fellowship with you and every other single believer all around the world is by God's sovereign, immutable decree before the foundation of the world. Now, I want to talk about that because Paul talks about God's grace. But secondly, we have fellowship in salvation. Now, the first decree is that of participation in the grace of God. That happens before the foundation of the world, but then comes our salvation, and that's what takes place in time. And we're in the fellowship of salvation because God has drawn us through the preaching of the gospel of Christ. We're brought to faith in Christ. Now, understand it, too, that this is a common faith. All of us believe the same thing. All of us are brought with a common faith. So the same gospel that saved me is the same gospel that saves you. There aren't multiple ways of salvation. So no matter what culture you're in and no matter what socioeconomic background, no matter the race, as we said a minute ago, all are brought to the Father in this common faith. Now, there are many people who don't teach that today. They teach that it really doesn't matter what you believe. Just be sincere Whatever it is you do believe, be sincere about that, and and your sincerity alone, that's enough to make you righteous with God. We have even some evangelical Christians that teach that. But whenever a person stands up and says that anybody could be saved by going some other way, that a Jew could be saved without Jesus Christ or any other person without personal faith in Jesus Christ, then that person is denying the very gospel that he claims to preach. Now, there's a reason why people don't understand this very well. Uh, They don't really understand who brings salvation. Now, I'm not here talking about necessarily faith in Christ, but they don't know who begins the work of salvation. Salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit. And what the Spirit does, he comes to a person beneath his consciousness and regenerates that person in order that he might express faith in Christ. So the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit is only for one reason, and that's to bring that person to faith in Jesus. So the Holy Spirit is not going to regenerate someone in order that they might believe in Islam, and He doesn't regenerate somebody to believe in Buddhism or, or any other religion of the world. He regenerates people only for the purpose of bringing them to faith in Christ. No one who has been regenerated does anything other than to express repentance and faith in the person of Jesus Christ. So if you get that order mixed up, and we talked about this in Sunday morning forum class, if you get that order mixed up of of what goes first here, and you try to put repentance and faith in front of regeneration then what you end up with is the opportunity for man to claim that he's done something himself. It's what I've done, my repentance, my faith. That's what saves me when, in fact, all of that is enabled by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. So you have to get that order right. And when you do, then you clearly understand, or you should understand, who has control of salvation. That's all in the hands of God. And so when God is control, we have a common salvation. We have fellowship in the salvation of Christ. We don't have anything in common with Islam, and we don't really have anything in in common with Judaism. We are all united by faith in Christ. And unless we have that faith, there will never be any peace between men. As long as there are people without faith in Christ, peace among men does not exist. Because Christ and belief in Him is what removes the enmity from man to God and from man to man. So we have fellowship in salvation. The third thing that we get is that we have fellowship in supplication. What do we do every time we come to church? Well, we come here and we sing and we pray. We praise God. We worship God. And we have fellowship together in prayer and thanksgiving as we supplicate God for our needs. And then we praise God for his response to that supplication. A few weeks ago, you may remember on Sunday morning, I told you about... Uh, the Navy chaplain who was court-martialed for praying in the name of Jesus at a public gathering. The problem was he was wearing his uniform and he was told that he was not supposed to end his prayer in the name of Jesus. But he was determined that he was going to do that because he was praying in the name of the only person by which God will will grant any request. He prayed in the name of Jesus. Now, what our leaders tried to do and we've talked about it. I mean, they want us to pray generic prayers. Public prayers ought to be generic prayers so that anybody who's there, they can feel comfortable with your, your, what you're praying and they can know that you're addressing their God as well. Well, those kinds of prayers don't actually unite us. What those prayer do, prayers do is they divide us. And that's because we don't have anything in common with, with people like terrorists who believe in the God that they believe in. Their God is not our God. But when we come here together and we pray together and we praise together and worship together in the name of Jesus Christ, we acknowledge the true one who is the ruler of heaven and earth. And that's the basis of fellowship. So we enjoy one another's company because we do believe in the same God. So we're never going to be united with people that, are believe, that believe in a different God. We have to have fellowship together in, in, this, in this one God that we serve, and we have a common bond of prayer when we come together. All you have to do is come and sit in a room like the one over here where the ladies and the men have prayer on a Sunday evening. All you have to do is come into a place right here on Wednesday night when a brother uh, gets up to pray. You, you, you have to feel that common bond and that spirit that works among us all. That's the fellowship that we have. We have fellowship in supplication, and that's a benefit that we get from the gospel of Christ. Now, a fourth thing that we have is we have fellowship in affection. Jesus said, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if you have love one to another. Sunday mornings, the past few weeks, we we talked about spiritual gifts. We're studying 1 Corinthians. One of the things we learned there is that grace is greater than spiritual gifts. And the greatest grace of all is love. Paul said that tops everything else. And unless you have love, all of the spiritual gifts that you might claim to have, those things are zero. You must have love. So if love is missing, we don't have any fellowship. We can meet together. We can come. We can sing together. We can pray together. But as we do, if we don't have love, then all of us are just like little islands out here All by ourselves, disconnected, because love is the thing that brings us together. Every Sunday night, after the services, we sing, Bind us together, Lord, bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. And then we end that song, Bind us together in love. So love is what permits our fellowship. Without love, we're self-indulgent. Without love, we're selfish. We think only about us and about nobody else. We have to have love for fellowship. So love never permits me to take advantage of you, and love will never permit me to harm another brother or sister in Christ. You don't learn these things from secular sources. You won't get it from watching TV. You won't get it from going to movies. You only learn this and get it as you are a part of the body of Jesus Christ. So it only happens among those who themselves have been drawn with cords of everlasting love. So Jesus said, if you love me... You'll love one another. The same love that knits together the Father and the Son is the very same love that knits us together with each other. Now, do you understand what that means? It means that we can have the very same fellowship that God has with the Son. That love ties us to Him, and that love ties us to one another. Now, the next thing that we have, number five, is we have fellowship in contribution. I think uh, we can talk about contribution in two ways. First, God has placed all of us in the body of Christ. So if you are a member of the Lord's church, then you're a part of the body of Christ. As we studied on Sunday mornings, Paul compares the body of Christ to the workings of a human body. There are many different parts that we have in our bodies, and all the parts of our body contribute to the working of the whole. For instance, when I sat down to write this message several weeks ago, I, mean, I sat there at the computer and my brain sends the signal to my arms and in turn sends signals to my hands. and turn that goes to my fingers. And I sit down there and I type out the outlines and everything that I want to say in the service. Well, that's the whole body working together for the good of the whole to make sure that this thing gets done like it's supposed to be done. And that's exactly the way the church functions. All of us work together. All of us contribute. That's the fellowship of the church. And church is a lot of fun, I think. But if I get up here and I preach, and I lead the singing, and I play the instruments, and I take up the offering, and I teach the Sunday school class, and I go over and take care of the nursery, then I do the bulletin during the week. If I do all of those things, church is no longer any fun, believe me. I mean, I don't think I could do all of that. So the purpose of having a church and having the fellowship is that everybody gets to contribute and so thereby everybody gets to share in the blessing. And church is a blessing. If you haven't learned that, then you haven't worked in the church. Outsiders don't have a clue what we're talking about here. They don't understand why that you get up on Sunday morning and you go to church and they go out and play golf. Now the guy that goes out and plays golf, he sits there in the clubhouse and drinks his beer while some of you ladies here, you go over in the nursery and you change dirty diapers. And the, the guy out there in the world, he's wondering, that doesn't sound equal. And it certainly doesn't sound like church is better. Not at all. But if, as a Christian, did you ever go try to play golf on Sunday morning instead of going to church? You ever done that? You ever go to a ball game on Sunday instead of going to church? Did you feel miserable when you did it? If you didn't, then you don't, you better check up on your spirituality, really. Because people who contribute in the church are not happy unless they are contributing. That's the fellowship of the gospel. Now, that's one type of contribution, but we have another, and that contribution that we make to the many needs that other people have. We come to church, we give our tithes and our offerings. And that goes for the benefit of people all around the world that can hear the gospel of Christ that might not otherwise get to hear it. But then you might contribute in other ways. You, you may bring a monetary gift to someone who's in the church who has a need. You might do that. And some folks in the church will do things like that. There may be a Christian here that's on hard times and uh, they're having difficulties and, and maybe they're sick or something. And you go over their house and you do a chore for them. Or maybe a loved one has died. You take some food to their house. That's one of the benefits you get of being a part of a church. And it's not that you have to do it. It's that you want to do it. You don't call it drudgery. You like to do those things. And that's because the love of Christ is in you. Christ dwells in you. And you know this, that when you do it for them, when you do a good work for another member of your church or or another Christian, you know that when you do it for them, you are also doing it for Christ. And that's exactly what Jesus said. He said, Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least Of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. That's what you get when you know Jesus. When the gospel is real to you, then you can fellowship in your contributions. Now, number six is we have fellowship in proclamation. And that means that we all have a part in getting out the message of the gospel to people that are lost and dying in sin. Now, let me make something clear to everybody that's here. The only way that you can do this properly is through the church. Did you know that Christ has given nobody the commission to preach the gospel except the church? Nobody has a right to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ but the church of Jesus Christ. That that might seem strong and many people don't agree with that. But you show me one place in scripture where Jesus gave anyone the authority outside of the church and gave them the authority to preach and to baptize Show me one instance of that and then I'll believe it, but you won't find it. And so that's why we don't support parachurch organizations. God did not give the responsibility of preaching the gospel to anybody but the church. So he didn't give it to Gideons, he didn't give it to the Campus Crusade for Christ, and he didn't give it to InterVarsity. They don't have a commission to preach the gospel. The scripture says, the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. And so whenever the truth goes outside the auspices of the church, it does not stay truthful. Now, any organization that wants to preach the gospel must first come under the authority of the church. So whenever a missionary comes to us and they want to present their ministry, they want to tell about where they're going in the world, what kind of work they're going to do, first question I always ask, what church are you out of? What church gave you the authority to preach and to baptize? And if that person says to me, oh, uh, no church gave me that authority, then I say, bye-bye. We're not going to support you unless you have the authority of a New Testament church to go and do that. Now, some of them come to me and they tell me what church they're from, and I still say, bye-bye. We're not going to support them. So in every case, you find this to be true. When an organization has tried to preach the gospel without authority, they may stay true for a while, but they don't stay true. The truth always suffers unless it's being taught by the church of Jesus Christ. So the thing that I'm trying to get across to you here is that you don't get this privilege unless you're in the fellowship, in a proper fellowship of Bible-believing Christians that constitute a, church of the New, a New Testament church of Jesus Christ. You know, I was happy when, when Brother Dalton told me that our teenagers were interested in going out and, and passing out church brochures and tracts. That's a privilege that you get when you become a part of a church. And so when Paul said to these Philippians, I thank God for you in your fellowship of the gospel, then what he meant was, you are also sharing the gospel with people in your city. You have a part in that. And as you support me, as you send money to me for these missionary endeavors, you, you are also fellowshipping in that, in that same gospel that you're able to share with other people. So we have that kind of fellowship, proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ. Now, the seventh thing that we have is we have fellowship in separation. Fellowship in separation comes in three ways. It's divinely imposed, automatically imposed, and it may be self-imposed. Now, when you become a Christian, what God does, he separates you from the rest of the world. He separates you, he puts you into a special class, He has intentionally chosen you for separation in eternity past, and then in time he chooses you to be separate and to be holy. That's the divine imposition. But then there's also, if you're a faithful Christian, I mean, if you're a Christian who's living according to the word of God, you're faithful in what you do, you will be automatically separated from the world. And what I mean by that is Jesus said, you don't have to do anything. The world will separate itself from you. If you're a Christian who, who follows like you're supposed to, the world will separate itself from you. He says in John fifteen nineteen, If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. So just by virtue of the fact that you are a Bible-believing Christian and you live your faith, the world will automatically separate from you. But then there's another way that we separate, and this is a self-imposed separation, And the reason why this is necessary is because there are so many Christians that aren't faithful to live it the way that they should. So when you're not devoted, then you have to self-impose a separation. When you're in the world, you're out of fellowship with believers. And so this is what the Scripture says. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Paul wrote that to the Corinthians, when they, when they were yoked together with unbelievers. They, they were marrying people who weren't believers. They got into business with people who weren't believers. Religion was mixed up in that Corinthian church. But if you want to continue in the fellowship of believers, you can't mix it up with the fellowship of the world. So the fellowship of the gospel will separate you divinely, automatically, and it will separate you personally. Now finally, and this is one that we should all be too familiar with by now and that is we have fellowship in aggression that seems strange we have fellowship in participation salvation supplication affection contribution proclamation separation and this last one is aggression now here i'm coming back to spiritual warfare when you join up in the gospel you get into the army of the lord of hosts the lord of sabbath he's your commander And you have fellowship with all of these different comrades in arms. I'm not going to take you back to Ephesians chapter 6 and go through that again. But there we find those weapons of spiritual warfare. And anybody who is true to the fellowship of the gospel will find themselves in the fight of their life. You are in the battle. And when you join up with the gospel, you become comrades in arms with every other faithful Christian that there is around the world. And when Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he was writing to fellow soldiers. When he wrote to the Corinthians, he was writing to fellow soldiers. Some of them were AWOL, and he had to gather them up, but he was writing to fellow soldiers. And when he writes to the Philippians, these are fellow soldiers. And so he says, I thank God for you. I thank God for your faith. I pray for you. I joyfully pray for you. We have fellowship in the gospel. So do you see what you get when you trust Christ? You get all these different methods of fellowship. And when you have all of that together, that teaches you how to have peace and happiness. You, you contribute, and all, all these things contribute, rather, to the peace and happiness that you have in Christ. There is no joy like being in the fellowship of believers. And that's what Paul begins to teach as we start in this book of Philippians. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for all of your people that are here tonight we thank you, Lord, for this fellowship that we have together, the love that we can express for one another, all the different things that we talked about here tonight, contribution and supplication, our salvation, all of these things. Lord, we thank you for that. We praise your name for it. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to be the kind of people you want us to be, separate from the world, holy, dedicated to you, consecrated to the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless in this time of invitation, we give you the praise in Jesus name we pray amen let's